Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, this is episode 159 of Historically Thinking. Imagine, if you would, a world without either money or banks. How could anyone conduct business? How could anyone procure essential goods and services? How could you have a diversified economy? How could a person plan for the future? But that was the world of early America prior to the revolution. One of the many changes brought about by that event was the creation of both money and banks in the new United States but neither of them worked in the ways that we now expect. With us to explore this strange yet oddly resonant world of money and finance is Sharon Ann Murphy. She is professor of history at Providence College and author most recently of Other People's Money, How Banking Worked in the Early American Republic, published by Johns Hopkins University Press as part of their wonderful series, How Things Worked. Sharon Ann Murphy, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. So, um, you, in the first chapter, described to us uh, a world without money or banks. Um, so describe that to the listener. Uh, what's a world without money? I mean, it's technically a world without, it's not, well, you explain all that. <laughs> well, so everybody needs something for exchange and going back to the earliest times, people have exchanged with each other. Um, and money just serves as a substitute uh, providing a... Uh, uh, an easier means than barter. So without money, you have to uh, trade. So you want um, you want a cow, you have to find something suitable that that person wants to trade you a cow for. Um, and so what do you have? Do you have eggs or wheat or something along those lines? And um, it gets difficult without money because, um, of course, do you want the whole cow or just a part of the cow? And um, how do you divide that up? And how do you... Um, how do you uh, have that exchange if, uh, say, you don't have something that person has, and so you have to trade with the third person to get something that person has? So th- it becomes very complicated without having um, formal money of some sort. Uh, but anything can be money. It doesn't have to. We associate it with um, with actual metallic currency. Um, but anything can actually be money. So early uh, Americans used everything from the famous wampum of the Native American tribes up in New England. Um, so shells that uh, people could trade and uh, associated value with um, to tobacco warehouse receipts in Virginia. Um, people used foreign currencies such as silver coins uh, from uh, the Spanish uh, Spanish colonies in, in North America and uh, uh, Mexico uh, and, and the like. Um, so there's all sorts of things that can serve as money, but with, without money, you are reduced to, uh, you know, friendly trades with each other of, of one thing or another. So this is always very interesting to talk to undergraduates about um, because I've actually learned a lot of this. Reading your book was great because I realized how much of this I had done based on deduction and reading archives (laughs) rather than than I had actually known how things worked. So when people say we're going to pay you so much, so many pounds tobacco, undergraduates say, well, you mean they were actually like handing over tobacco leaves and no, no, there's tobacco certificates. So that's a kind of then 
that's like a commodity certificate as a currency. Would that be right? Correct. Yeah, it's it's a commodity based money, um, and even gold and silver is is uh, would be a commodity based money as well. Yeah, um, what they're often shocked to find is, and I guess I was shocked to find too when I started re- reading ledgers, was how certainly in the South, and I've never I've never investigated New England ledgers, everything seems to be about credit, and as I say to them. Yeah, they were a credit system like you guys, only instead of using plastic, they used their face. Um, and everything is basically pluses and minuses in a ledger, which may or may not be called in. Would that be a fair way of summarizing it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we um, have always been a, a creditor-based, uh, credit-based economy, um, and it, that makes the most uh, the most sense. You don't need to be constantly uh, dealing with uh, bringing and, and uh, bringing money and, and settling accounts because uh, pluses and minuses, a lot of those cancel themselves out over time. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And then it comes that, <laughs> yeah, they do, and that, that might come some terrible moment, like when someone dies. And their executors have to call in the debts to the estate to settle the estate, and that's those seem to be like the little little ripples within a local economy of uh, everyone sort of you know hitting up everyone else for money whenever that happens, yeah, causing a be, local crisis. Yeah, it could be a death, or it could be um, some sort of uh, problem in the in the local economy or the the larger economy um, that causes people to call in those debts, and so the, that's when we. Um, start seeing problems in our economy. It's not that different from uh, even even today uh, between the the recession of two thousand eight or um, the current pandemic, um, uh, which is a very different experience, a uh, different type of panic. But um, it, it's a similar type of thing. People uh, suddenly ha- needing to call in those those debts and having to find the the money to pay off those debts. So there are thirteen. Uh colonies, well, more than that, in, in uh, British colonies, more like tr- in, in, up into the 20s, and they all trade with each other. Mm-hmm. They're all using different systems of currency in one way or the other. The Someone might ask, why aren't they using pounds and shillings? Well, they uh, in some ways were using pounds and shillings, but um, there's not enough of it to go around. So actually, actual British coinage um, is very scarce. Uh, most of it flows overseas to Britain to um, pay off uh, debts to them, uh, to buy products from them. Uh, and so the states do have to come up with their own uh, systems. The British government doesn't like it very much because uh, it, it's um, often inflationary. Uh, so they have a problem with that and often based on uh, uh, fiat money, meaning that it has no backing at all. It's not it's not a commodity backed uh, money. Um, so they have a they have a problem with that, but yes, the even within the colonies, uh, you'd often have things denominated as uh, pounds and shillings with prices, but a Vermont pound might be different from a Massachusetts pound, um, so they're not necessarily uh, completely uh, exchangeable either. And why didn't Britain? Uh, is it true that Britain didn't actually allow um, pounds or? or- specie or uh, to be circulated in in the American colonies? Uh, it's not that they didn't allow specie, uh, meaning a physical gold and silver, so to be circulated. They allowed that, they but, allowed not, that. but not coin. Uh, well, uh, the, the they, they allowed coin, but they, what they did not want were um, this, the colonies themselves to issue their own coins. Okay. Um, so they wanted, if you were going to use coin, they wanted you to be using British coin. But of course, as I said, they, that that's scarce. Um, so that was a problem. 
and there were and there was never any thought of like creating a mint in Philadelphia or anything like that. So the, uh, the colonies were left to their own devices. Yeah, certainly the British were didn't think about creating a creating a mint, and uh, and we didn't actually have those the gold and silver to do it. So having a mint, um, even when we had a mint after the revolution, after the Constitution, we technically have a mint, but we don't really mint a whole lot because we don't have much gold and silver to turn <laughs> into coins. So um, it's a it's a moot point if you don't have anything to turn into coins. Um, what else should we know about the, the world of, let's talk about the world without banks. Cause there are, you said, and I, I, I guess I never realized this. There are no banks in America, in the, in North America until 1783, which is really astounding. Yeah. I um, mean, there's a couple things we would call land banks, but uh, I'm not, I, I, they're technically not really banks, but, um, they're ways of lending money, but yes, there's, there's really no technical banks, um, earlier on. So, so what is a land bank? That's important to uh, uh, so a land bank. Public. A land bank would be um, a system where uh, you can uh, basically put up uh, your land as uh, collateral and uh, get get certificates from this bank uh, to use that could circulate in the economy. And so, um, it's it's kind of like getting a mortgage in some ways. Um, a, a, a very early version of that. Um, and so some states had these land banks as a way of um, adding some liquidity to the local economy, but um, they, they uh, were not major impact in the colonial period. Why not? I mean, because that's a rather, it's a stable store of value. Um, the land, uh, real estate prices probably at least are stable um, the, the at the time, aren't they? I mean, at least in certain parts of the colonies, the population isn't growing that much. Yeah, I um, know. Uh, it's uh, it, you need someone to actually set these up, and um, you, you need to trust in their certificates. So it would need hmm. to be uh, government backed is the best way to go. And again, they were they were controversial, um, and so the uh, the the British. Uh, didn't particularly like them. And um, so, so some colonies did do this um, with some success, uh, but they were they were limited at the time. So very briefly and briskly, um, what happens uh, really through the revolution and through the, and through the Constitution into, uh, say, 1800 with this creation of an American banking system? Yeah, so uh, if you don't have a bank, what a bank does is uh, adds... Uh, financial intermediation. It it brings together people who are savers with um, who are potential creditors um, with people who need money, um, and you don't need banks to do this. Uh, you can have direct intermediation where you need money. You go to your father, your uncle, your sister, your um, friend, uh, and ask them for a loan. Uh, but that creates all sorts of problems of um, uh, risk. You know, are you, uh, do you know the riskiness of this uh, venture you're getting into? There's no diversification. Um, so what a bank does is it, um, it simplifies the process. Uh, it provides oversight. Uh, there's uh, a bank has, is better able to assess who's a good risk. Um, you're, uh, the people who are the creditors, um, which in early banking are going to be mostly the stockholders of the bank. Um, there's also depositors, but in this period, it's mostly stockholders is, is where we get the, the actual money lendable funds. Um, you, the, those 
that those lendable funds are then being spread out over a large group of loans. And so you have more diversification. And so there's more safety in that. Um, and so in our late 19th century, uh, sorry, late 18th century after the revolution, um, we very quickly have, um, even during the revolution, the Bank of North America is actually uh, first proposed during the revolution as a way to address the monetary needs of the war. It actually doesn't get up and running um, adequately until after the revolution. Uh, but this idea initially is we need something kind of akin to the Bank of England um, to uh, to help finance uh, our financial needs. Um, and so we have the, the Bank of North America initially um, and then Alexander Hamilton um, in his uh, as a secretary of the treasury uh, has all his proposals for how to develop this, this new American economy as we uh, have a new nation. And one of his main proposals is this creation of a bank of the United States uh, to, which does get passed and uh, very famously now that we all have seen the musical, um, the debate with it between him and Thomas Jefferson in front of Washington, um, which uh, minus the ex expletives, which I don't know, maybe they were there, um, really did happen. Um, <laughs> and, uh, Washington sides with Hamilton ultimately and decides that this is a wise thing to do and, and establishes the, the Bank of the U.S. in 1791. Now, as crazy as it might sound, um, to, to put the question this way, were there financial reasons that people like Jefferson had against banks? Um, or was it merely a sort of legal constitutional argument? But it seems that it was more than that. Uh, it, I mean, you have the legal constitutional argument, even though um, uh, someone like Madison, who was also uh, against the bank on constitutional grounds, um, had just argued uh, very vehemently in uh, the Federalist, uh, the Federalist Papers, um, for an expansive necessary and proper clause, um, and then when it, when push comes to shove, and he has a real life example of something that uh, is a necessary and proper clause issue, he turns around and says, "No, I changed my mind." Um, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, I always laugh at the people who uh, want to talk about the founding fathers and their beliefs, and we have to go with the, what the founding fathers believed because um, they were changing their minds. Uh, so we can't actually. It depends on which day you called on Madison, well, which where he where he fell. But yeah. But let's let's let me defend Madison a little bit oh, here yeah. because he saw he saw people like Wadsworth of Connecticut and Dewar of New York. Uh, horning in on the, he was not interested in 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 basic the government financing these people who, as he saw it, were uh, at at best unsavory speculators, if not engaged oh, in yeah. ar arbitra acts of of ar venal arbitrage. Right, right. Well, and this is to your point that um, it's more than just a constitutional argument. Right. Um, that that there's other reasons that they were coming down against the, against the bank. Um, and, and some of it is just uh, their vision of, so for Jefferson, their vision of what the nation should be, a central bank. Um, and, and I should say right off the bat, the first and second banks of the U.S. were not central banks, so I should say a federal bank. Um, a federal bank, a, a federally chartered bank, um, is different from the vision that someone like Jefferson has for an agricultural nation. Um, and so Hamilton's really trying to put together um, a much more unified uh, vision for what the economy is going to look like. Um, 
And, and that is different from the vision that Jefferson has. Uh, Jefferson also has uh, huge problems with uh, debt himself throughout his life. Um, and so there, uh, he is among uh, people who are kind of skeptical of a system that seems to, as you said, uh, seems to reward speculation and um, uh, reward certain uh, actors in the economy over over others. So, um, so certainly there is more than just a purely constitutional argument being made. And yet, someone listening might be still be asking, but don't farmers in a in, even in an agrarian republic don't they require loans? Don't they require some way of buying more land, investing in new um, in new properties? In Jefferson's case, investing in more slaves. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I mean, uh, certainly as we'll get to, and this is sort of your new project that you're very exciting project that you're working on. Uh, it's not as if banking and slavery are like uh, opposites, right? Um, it's not as if, and God knows, it's not as if, if farming and banking are opposites. And Jefferson's, a, he's not dumb. Uh, he, he, he knows this, that there's that investment and is that, that farming is about the future and investment is about the future and the two can go together. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's really one thing that has been a problem in the historiography is we often talk about people, um, historical figures being pro-bank and anti-bank. Um, and we have to differentiate, um, there are people who were anti-federal bank, but pro-state bank. Um, and so a lot of people supported uh, the state establishment of banks. Um, other people are pro-bank, um, but only if they are using a specie, purely specie standard and are not um, issuing bank notes beyond what they have in their vaults specie-wise. And so those would be a kind of our more hard currency, hard money uh, people. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, nuance within this. So it's not this hard and fast, uh, either you're pro-bank or anti-bank. Oftentimes you have uh, a much more varied. So uh, a Jefferson um, wouldn't necessarily be anti-all banks, um, but he's just not for a federally chartered bank that has a monopoly um, uh, being the only bank, the only federally chartered bank, the only bank with the, the ability to establish branches throughout the country, whereas other banks couldn't do that. So now I'm spending too long on this, but <laughs> could you distinguish between uh, sort of the federal bank or the federally charter banks or the first and second bank of the United States and a central bank? Because oftentimes I think that's elided or, or confused in, in some right. popular discussions of it. Yeah, because um, the Bank of England was a central bank and uh, our current Federal Reserve functions as a central bank. And so we often think of these uh, federally chartered banks as, as central banks. Um, a central bank, um, really, to, to be simple about it, would serve two central functions. Um, one would be they are implementing the, um, the monetary policy of the central government. Um, and even though the uh, first and second bank were partially public, they um, 20% owned by the federal government and had some representation from the government, they were in no ways um, following the dictates of the Secretary of Treasury, for example. So they weren't actually implementing a, a, a central policy of the, the government. And the other thing is that um, a central bank uh, classically would, would act as a lender of last resort to rescue um, the banking system in times of trouble. Uh, the uh, first and second banks um, chose to act this way um, in a very limited way on certain occasions, but they were never required to do that. And in, at times such as the Panic of 1819, the second bank uh, outright chose not to 
uh, act as a lender of last resort. And so those are the kind of two central key functions of a central bank that um, the first and second banks just did not do. So Madison, having been against the, uh, been for a, a bank or sort of a, for at least the principle of that idea is against it. And then as president, he discovers what it's like to fight a war uh, <laughs> without banking. Um, and he decides then to be in favor of a bank again. So we go through 1812, where basically we're being floated by a consortium mm-hmm. of investors, right? Right. Um, Stephen Gerard of Philadelphia and a few others whose name I forget. And then we move into the second bank in the United States. Now, pr- quickly, how does a, do the first and second bank differ in any important way? Uh, the, the, they are extremely alike in most ways. Um, they're both 20% federally funded. Um, they, the second bank is three and a half times larger than the first <laughs> bank. Uh, so it's a significant increase in size. Um, but for, for most of the main points between them, they are, uh, they function similarly. They both are allowed to establish branches throughout the country. Um, they both can make both private loans to individuals as well as um, uh, loaning to the central government, federal government. Um, so yes, they, they are very similar to each other, but the, the second bank is three and a half times larger. And they're both, um, I have to say, as, as a native Philadelphian, they're both in Philadelphia. They are both. Um, they, Philadelphia is still the financial capital of the yeah. United States. <laughs> as uh, Robert Wright's book, that when Chestnut Street was the first, was was Wall Street. Right, um, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the... To tell the, that's not to say that there are not by this time by 1820 lots of other banks and you right. tell a great story at the beginning of chapter three mm-hmm. chapter four about the uh which appeared in a in of all places a dover delaware newspaper right about the delaware farmer's daughter so could you tell that in the national recorder of dover delaware yeah. could you tell that story and then we could um yeah my favorite newspaper uh could you t- tell that story and then tease it apart because it's a great way of of, of sort of sh- showing people how to think historically or about an event yeah um so first i'll say that um you you mentioned these state chartered banks um so alongside our two uh central banks uh, sorry i keep saying that our federally chartered banks. <laughs> uh, correcting myself um the, the states were also chartering banks, um, and those banks are issuing bank notes of their own. And so by the, the, by the time we get to this point, um, we have uh, uh, several hundred uh, banks in the United States, um, uh, about 327 by 1820, um, scattered throughout the, the United States, um, and these are being chartered by the states. So yeah, in... Um, in the spring of 1820, we have the National Recorder, a Dover, Delaware newspaper, publishing this great tale. And I, I came across this in uh, the newspapers, and I just loved it, um, of a young woman who encountered an armed robber on the road. And so this account tells the story of this, this, this woman, a farmer's daughter. She was traveling by horseback to town, and she had a large $100 banknote from a state bank that she was planning to exchange for smaller notes. Now, it doesn't say why she had this large note. A $100 note would be an extremely large note to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but on their arrival to uh, at the bank, she discovered that the bank had shut down. And so these bank notes uh, issued by the states, they um, are redeemable only at the at the bank that issued them. So you actually have to go to that, that bank. Now, other people can choose to accept these banknotes, uh, but they don't have to. Uh, and so how well a banknote circulated through the economy really depended on uh, trust in that particular 
uh, bank. And so uh, she found that uh, the bank had shut down and all the local merchants, knowing that this bank has shut down, no longer are willing to accept her bank note. So she's now left with what we would call an uncurrent note. It's no longer accepted as currency. Um, And so she's... Yep. And it's for an, and we have to emphasize, it's for an immense amount of money. It's a lot of money. <laughs> uh, in, in 1820, it's, it's, it's not that different. I think a blacksmith's wage in 1850 was like $300 a year. Yeah. So yeah. we can, it, we, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. So, uh, so suddenly as she's, you know, going around and presumably she's walking around town trying to pawn off this note, a seemingly kind gentleman appears on the road alongside her um, as she's riding back home. And he must have heard about her story in town. And as they reach a more remote area, the stranger pulls a gun on her and demands that she turns over this now technically defunct banknote, which is kind of curious because he must know that this is no longer a current banknote. Uh, but the question is how many other people know that? So the local community knows that the bank has, has closed, but people further out might not yet. And so he wants this note, this is still a potential value to him to pawn off on someone else. So the, the man, um, by a twist of fate, the, the, the a gust of wind blows the, the note out of the woman's hand. Um, the man dismounts and dismounts from his horse and chases after the note. And the woman quickly sets her horse to gallop to try to escape. Uh, the robber fires his gun at her, spooking his now unoccupied horse, which then follows the woman back to the farm. And once home, the farmer and his daughter soon discover that the robber's saddlebags contain a large ca- quantity of counterfeit banknotes. So these would be uh, notes that uh, were manufactured by some engraver on a non-existent bank, or it could be on an existing bank, but the, the bank hadn't actually issued these. So counterfeit notes, as well as what they call $1,500 in good money, which would mean notes that are um, actually on real banks uh, uh, issued by those banks. Um, and so although they had lost this $100 uncurrent banknote, um, they surmised that the robber's horse alone would be worth $100 and uh, would, would make up for it, as well as all that money in the saddlebags. And so this has been labeled, uh, th- this is titled in the, in the newspaper, A Good Story. Um, and newspapers around the country reprinted the saga, a very common thing that happened at this time, uh, this 19th century version of, of going viral with a story. And so everybody would hear about this story, and I found, I found it in newspapers all up and down the eastern seaboard. So what does this story tell people? How, how do you tease this story apart? Yeah, so this is um, a, a really interesting story of how people interact with money. Um, and so they uh, are constantly having to be concerned about what their actual money is worth. Is it actually worth anything? Is, it, um, is their bank still in existence? Can I trade this? Um, is someone going to accept this at, if I go and try to use it to pay for something? Um, is, is it a counterfeit note? Is that, is that a problem as well? And so, uh, everybody at the time understood this. We, we, uh, looking back on it, see this as a really complicated system. And in some ways you can look at this, uh, this poor woman as being, um, hurt by this system. The reality is everybody at the time understood the system. They understood the risks. Um, one, uh, uh, a historian of banknotes um, whose book is uh, about to come out on the history of banknotes, which should be fabulous, Joshua Greenberg. Um, 
he has called this a game of hot potato where everybody has their banknote. And um, as long as you can pass it off on someone else before they realize that they have um, a note that's not accepted or no longer good, uh, you're good. Um, And you also have merchants then making decisions, um, okay, uh, and individuals, um, am I going to accept this note for its face value? So she could have gone into a, a merchant Um, who knows that that bank is um, maybe teetering, uh, maybe not going to survive, or maybe knows that the bank has failed. Uh, And the the merchant can make a a calculated decision. Am I going to be able to pass off this banknote? Um, and, um, or am I going to, uh, how much is this banknote worth it to me? And especially if it comes to uh, having to bring a, a note long distances to the bank, to, to redeem it. Um, and they would do what's called discounting. Um, so you could come in and with, uh, say, a $5 note to make a purchase. And the merchant would say, you know what, um, the cost for me to transport this to the bank of issue um, and the risk of that bank not being in existence means that I'm going to only accept this as $4.50. Um, and you have to decide and you can no- negotiate, you can barter. Um, no, how about four sixty? And you can go back and forth. Um, but ultimately, there's no sense. None of this money is legal tender. Um, so legal tender is a, a designation by the government that you must accept it. Our money today is legal tender. If if you say something's a dollar and I offer you a dollar, you can't you can't discount that. You can't not accept that dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, so none of this is legal tender. This is all a matter of negotiation. And um, so the people at the time understood that. Um, but they also, th- this was a, a hard system to work in. You have all these different notes by all these different banks. They all look different um, and trying to figure out what's a current note, what bank's still in existence, what's a counterfeit, what's um, even altered notes. So you could have a $1 note that's been turned into a $15 <laughs> note. Um, and so all the things that we look at our money today, and I show my students this, um, you know, the, there's a reason that w- you see on your notes, uh, the number will be written out and then will mm-hmm. also be printed as a number in different fonts and making it as difficult as possible. But um, there, there's examples of uh, notes from colonial times where they literally have erased the original amount and written in a higher amount. <laughs> uh, and if you look really closely, you can see that they've done this. But if you're not looking closely, you don't realize that this has been altered. So so this to us is just crazy and confusing. Um, yeah. But as as you're saying, it, it, it's very likely that a note issued in Dover, Delaware might be accepted in, say, Wilmington, Delaware, sure. but not not in Baltimore. Um, and this, the, these people are still living fairly close to, um, they live much limited lives. Um, and so they're going to be, they're going to not be going, they might not be going to, they're certainly not going to Baltimore every month. Right. Uh, and that, that won't be a part of their problem. I guess logically, the other thing they might do is they get one of these bills and they say, well, I want to change it to something else. Right. In, in colonial America, I guess they would have changed into, well, a lot of times they would change into silver. As in, like a silver coffee pot, right? Or so, or silver teapot. Uh, even though it's not silver is not fashionable anymore, at least it retains its value. Right. Um, e- even if you've got silver coin, you might want to have it melted down and turned into silver because it might be adulterated. And we'll get to that in just a second. In the future, someone might, you know, as it were, water down the silver, right? Uh, so it's less valuable. Um, those are things you can do, right? Right. Exactly. You could, um, even though the the the, the scarcity of um, metal 
uh, in the in the United States cannot be underestimated. So um, <laughs> the, even though you do have examples of people melting coins into silver, especially you know lots of silversmiths in in Boston and the like, um, this is limited because we just don't have the specie around to do this. Yeah, and I've noticed um, in the history that the um, where mints move to uh, the site of gold rushes. Right. So there's a a short, very short lived, very small gold rush in Virginia near Fredericksburg, mm-hmm. and I think they, there's a mint briefly there. Yeah. there. There's a mint in North Georgia briefly because mm-hmm. these, are, these are tiny though, but they they're going to wherever they can get some kind of of, of specie in the in the eastern United States. Correct. Correct. So this is. Um, we're in a bimetallic system. Correct. Speaking of that, what, what is a bimetallic system? So bimetallic system means that our money supply, and this is in the constitu- constitutionally, our money supply is uh, based on uh, both gold and silver. Um, and the reason you do that uh, is because the, the money is supposed to be minted into coins and you're supposed to carry those coins around. So this is um, a system without banknotes. Uh, but it, to make small value coins, um, gold, which is of higher value, you would have to have really, really tiny gold coins, which would be really easy to lose and be hard to carry around. Um, and so gold works better for larger denominations like dollar and $10 coins, um, whereas silver um, is of less value. And so to make large coins would make these obscenely heavy coins in silver. So silver works really good for your quarters and your dimes. Um, and so silver is made into the smaller coins. And then we actually technically um, have a trimetallic system, even though we'd never call it this, um, because our, our smallest coins, our coppers, um, are going to be made by copper. Uh, so our pennies and half cents are going to be made with copper. Um, but there's so little copper in the in the actual money supply. Um, the, the value is so little that you would never actually call it a trimetallic system. Um, so what that means is uh, you are valuing your coins, um, uh, your dollar coins and your silver coins are going to be directly tradable for each other. And um, we're dealing with a system, this is a global value system where those values fluctuate um, and they don't fluctuate together. And so there are times where gold will be, have a higher market value um, than silver, in which case um, you are more likely to take your gold coin and melt it down because it's worth more to you as um, a commodity as gold than it is as a coin. Um, And other times where that gold will be worth less than silver. And so it's better for you to have the gold as a coin. So you take your gold out of the market and have it minted into coins. And so in reality, um, we're only ever operating um, as at, at most points as a monometallic system um, because there's only one type of uh, uh, metal that is actively trading because the other one will be worth more for its market value. And so uh, it goes back and forth and there are times where we need to revalue. But of course, as I said early on, this is, this is all a moot point. This is all semantics um, until we actually get uh, large influxes of gold or silver into the economy. Um, so for, for most of the first half of the 19th century, um, this is, this is uh, just on paper what things are worth and uh, what it comes down to is the, the banknotes, which are technically supposed to be backed by gold or silver. You should be uh, technically are supposed to be able to take a banknote into a bank and redeem it for its value in gold or silver. Um, 
but the banks are issuing more notes than they actually have money in reserve on the presumption that you're going to be continuing to use uh, those bank notes, which are more convenient than having gold or silver in your pocket, uh, continuing to use those bank notes uh, for your transactions and not bring them back to the bank for redemption. But, well, that's an ir irresistible segue, uh, <laughs> but sometimes people do, and that creates a panic. Yes. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about, uh, a, a panic, what is it? Um, what is it not? Is, is a panic a recession? Is it a depression? And to, to do that, let's talk about the panic of 1837, 1839, which curiously enough, 1838 separates that, but you'll explain why. So uh, a panic is a uh, a moment, and so I'll separate it from a recession because you you don't necessarily uh, you don't need a panic to have a recession, and you don't necessarily get a recession out of a panic, but they're often mm -hmm. happen together. Um, uh, a panic happens when uh, people don't know if their money is going to be okay, if their bank's going to be okay. So if you're accepting banknotes, you're trusting that that bank is going to continue in existence in the future. And if you're putting money on deposit, you're trusting that that bank is going to continue in existence. And even um, when you borrow money from a bank, uh, the, what the bank is lending you is actual banknotes. They're not lending you gold or silver. Um, so you're receiving those banknotes that you have to pay back to the bank. So this is all based on a system of trust. Uh, our entire monetary system at all times is based on, on trust. Um, so can you trust that bank? If at some point more, uh, if the bank issues more banknotes uh, then they have money in reserve. Um, as long as that that those banknotes are circulating in the economy and not coming back in, it's fine. It's not a problem. Um, but if they issue too many, um, or if uh, there's some sort of problem in the economy that causes loans to be called in, for example, if people have more need for um, for specie, if people um, for any reason don't trust that their bank is going to survive, uh, they may rush to the bank to redeem those bank notes while they can. Um, and uh, what a panic is, is actually people's self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm not sure my bank's going to survive, so I'm going to rush and redeem my banknotes or remove my deposits as soon as I can, and that pretty much ensures that your bank won't survive. Um, so the best example of this is, of course, um, in uh, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, the great scene where uh, Jimmy Stewart uh, is arrives at the bank and there's a panic going on at his bank and uh, people come in and they're trying to remove their deposits in this case. And it's a savings and loan, but it's the, the, the scene functions uh, the same. Uh, and he says to them, but, but my, your money's not in my vault. Your money's in uh, Mrs. McGillicuddy's loan on her house, or it's in the, the, the loan to uh, Mr. Murphy's uh, a, a grocery store. Um, and so the, this money has been, uh, the way the, these banknotes work, they actually expand the money supply um, mm -hmm. and lubricate the economy and allow the economy to, to function well. But if you start contracting that money supply, suddenly you realize you don't have the species to back it up. Um, and so these banks will start failing. And once one fails, then you're like, oh, no, the, the, the Bank of Dover just failed. Well, is the Bank of Wilmington going to fail as well? Maybe I should remove my money from there. And so these panics precipitate, uh, just, just snowball one into the next one. Um, and if enough of these banks uh, start collapsing, you have a, a massive contraction of the money supply. Uh, and that's what can lead to the recession. 
Now, the Panic of 1837 is a really complex event and really fascinating because it's it's it has, um, by my count, at least five different um, reasons for it. At least. Yeah. At least. Yeah, at least. Um, but, you know, one of them is the end of the bank war uh, w- uh, between Jackson, the, the sort of the end of the second uh, the second bank. But also it's a, one of the interesting things is, you know, this is a global globalization's already happened in finance long before it happened in, in manufacturing. Right. And in 1837, uh, the British economy is booming mm-hmm. and it's looking for places to put it and that people are looking for places uh, to put their money. Uh, they've got so much of it. So they're putting it in American railroads. Mm-hmm. Uh and then a lot of them are probably not worth the paper that the the prospectus is printed on. Um, and all the, can you describe some of the reasons for this, the, the panic of 1837? So, and then why is 1838 good? And then <laughs> panic again? I wouldn't say 1838 is good. <laughs> okay. It's, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, and I will say one of the best accounts of this whole period is uh, Jessica Leffler's uh, The Many Panics of 1837. And, and she calls it <laughs> The Many Panics for a reason. Yeah. Um, so this is a global uh, event. Uh, both the boom that precedes it and the bust that um, that results um, are both global events. And so you have um, uh, we are in a global economy. Um, the United States uh, is is booming. Um, the cotton textile industry in Britain is pretty much buying up as much cotton as we can possibly produce in the United States. Um, but also our um, wheat farmers, our grain farmers are also exporting um, a lot of produce uh, abroad as well. And so this is not just a cotton boom. Um, because prices are, are going sky high in cotton, um, uh, for example, in cotton, um, cotton farmers are want to expand as rapidly as they can because it's, it's sure money. Um, the more they can plant, the more money they can make. And so they are buying up Western lands as fast as they can. They're buying it on credit. Um, speculators are buying this up to resell because it's it's kind of like our 2008 housing boom. Um, you know, you buy it on credit, it's gonna you're gonna be able to pay off that loan by the just the increase in value of that land. Um, so they're buying land, they're buying slaves to work that land. Um, all of this they're buying on credit, so they're deeply deeply in debt. Um, but it's not a problem as long as those prices are booming. So land prices are booming, slave prices are booming, cotton prices are booming, wheat prices are booming. All of that is booming. Um, but as soon as you have any kind of um, hiccup in the system, and we have several hiccups that happened in 1837, um, that can be a problem. And so we have everything from, and as you were you were saying also, um, uh, British investors are looking for um, a bigger return on their investment. And so interest rates on um, things like railroad bonds are higher. And this is the beginning of the railroad boom. Railroad bonds are higher in the United States. And so you have a lot of investors also pu- pushing money into the United States. So it's a, it's a very um, liquid economy, very expansionary, but this entire boom period. And then things start going a little awry um, as uh, one, as you mentioned, the, the bank war, um, Jackson, and I don't want to overstate, Jackson doesn't cause the Panic of 1837, but he certainly is not helping things with his <laughs> actions. Um, so he is um, contracting the money supply by uh, removing the deposits from, uh, that's one of the things that the, the Second Bank of the U.S. serves as a depository for federal funds. He removes those deposits and disperses them to a bunch of state banks. Um, this causes a 
contraction of the the money supply um, in in certain parts of the country, um, but then expands the money supply in other parts of the country and actually feeds some of this frenzy in the West as he's he's putting more money out in these Western banks where a lot of the speculation is concern, is occurring. Um, and then he issues his um, specie circular, which uh, is a requirement that you pay for all that land, all that federally purchased land that you're purchasing, uh, you pay for it with specie and not with banknotes, which um, puts a real strain on the system as uh, the people have to turn in their banknotes and get specie to pay for all this uh, overpriced land they've been purchasing. So that's not helping things. Um, but there's also um, changes in the global economy. Um, there, there's a collapse in cotton prices um, as other uh, sources of cotton start coming on board um, in places like Egypt. Um, there is a problem with uh, silver flows uh, that involves the opium war in China. Um, so the idea this is this is definitely um, a global economy, and um, we, a, a problem in one part of the economy can can multiply into other parts of the economy. So. Uh, you know, in 37, you, you, you suddenly, and, and you start seeing this early in 36, but it's really in 37 as um, those prices start collapsing, you start seeing some of these banking houses that are heavily invested in um, uh, cotton start, start closing, um, they start going bankrupt, um, and that starts people panicking, um, people start withdrawing money, people start calling in loans, and you have this moment of panic. Now, initially, it does not result in a full-blown recession. Um, things seem to stabilize by uh, 1838, and people kind of take a, a breath, okay, things are okay, um, Some we have some failures, but we will get things back on board. Um, and so you have this... Uh, temporary moment when, th when things seem to be getting better. And then all of a sudden in um, 1839, uh, it, it, it just returns. It, it really was just a reprieve. And you have more failures and um, more banks going under, more panic. And that leads to this very long recession that we have that goes into at least uh, 42 or 43. Really, um, really so a, de a depression, certainly. One of the big ones, wasn't it? Yes, it's one of one of the biggest ones we have, and certainly, um, you know, eighteen nineteen is a very big, uh, big recession, but not as big as thirty seven. And thirty seven also hits much more widely in the economy. Um, we have a lot more um, investment in things like bonds for infrastructure, like railroads, like canals. Um, a lot of states have now started issuing bonds, even for. Um, things like uh, plantation banks in the South and all sorts of bonds being issued. Um, and uh, the states are no longer able to pay those off. And many states, um, several in the South, but also states like um, Pennsylvania as well, actually repudiate the bonds. They, they decide they're not going to continue payment on those bonds, um, which is also a, a huge hit to the economy because now um, what used to be considered a, a, a safe guaranteed investment has suddenly um, also proven to be unreliable. Yeah, if, if I recall correctly, that's the those are those are those the canals that, for example, that Illinois had planned to build. Right. Lincoln Lincoln was one of the assemblymen that pushed this Im immense canal system that all turned belly up. Right. I think I think Virginia is still paying off some of this in the eighteen nineties, <laughs> oh, the nineteen twenties. Yeah. I think Easily. I think 
easily. I mean, it's, it goes on for a hundred years. Yeah. Um, and it has a lot to say about the, of, of, yeah, the panic of it has very far reaching ramifications culturally right. and attitude towards fi- attitude towards finance. Um, this is all happening against a background of what you describe as experiments in money and banking. So very quickly, let me fire off some phrases and you explain what they are because they are they're they're fascinating. Uh, one would be anti-banking. There are states that are anti-banking. What does that mean? So um, in response to the the Panic of eighteen thirty seven, some states decide, you know what, banks are just bad. We we just should operate without banks altogether. Um, and so some states actually start putting it into their constitutions or um, some of the new states inserting it into new state constitutions that banks are illegal. We can't issue banks. Um, And this is problematic for all sorts of reasons. Um, You have, you you have real credit needs. Um, People need, as you said earlier, farmers need credit. Um, And so not having banks actually uh, grinds an economy to a halt. You need that expansionary monetary system. Um, so this is a problem, and, and uh, the best example of this is Louisiana, um, which is, uh, you know, next to, um, of all those states in the South, is, is certainly the most commercial of the states with, with the seaport. And they, um, they are a very vibrant banking system. They are hit hard by the Panic of 1837 because they have so much cotton trade. They ban banks in the Constitution. They write a new Constitution banning banks. Um, and then they realize, oh, my God, we can't function <laughs> without banks. And they start losing ground rapidly to New York as um, becoming more and more important. And they, they realize, you know what, we need to rethink this. And they actually rewrite the Constitution again um, to put into place a, a much more uh, uh, free, they put into place free banking, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about. Um, That's the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent segue. Yeah, so they they rewrite the the their constitution to put in in place free banking, which is in many ways the opposite of anti banking. Yeah. So they 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 swing back and forth here. Um, other places in the in the South remain anti banking, and it and it really does put um, a stop to uh, their economy and and really slows it down. Hmm. Uh, but free, you want me to jump in? Yeah, free, free banking. banking. Yeah. What, what, if I want to be a, in a free banking system, how do I start a bank? Yeah, so free banking, and again, these are um, state systems, so uh, state laws. Um, it's first tried um, in New York and Michigan, um, and Michigan uh, initially is a failure in this, um, but and, and New York uh, quickly revises its laws to make it work more effectively. Free banking is not um, a free-for-all. It's actually a, a, a highly regulated system, so the, the name is a little bit of a misnomer. Yeah, it sounds uh, anarcho, anarcho-capitalist kind right, of. Right, uh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's actually not. Uh, what it is is um, we, we have uh, laws being passed um, that are, are standardized laws for... Um, for establishing corporations um, in all of these uh, all of these states, and so this is a a type of general incorporation law specifically for banks. And so a general incorporation law is just uh, lays out if you want to start a certain type of corporation, such as say a manufacturing corporation, you need to do X, Y, and Z. You need to have this much upfront capital. You need to structure your your charter in this way. Um, you have these duties, these privileges, these obligations to the state. Um, and so a free banking law does that specifically for banking. And so uh, the two main aspects of free banking um, are you needed to have a certain amount of minimum 
capital um, put into place. Um, and again, it defined the duties and obligations that, that you had and privileges that you had. Um, but the they also had to then, um, anyone who established one of these banks had to ba back up their bank notes by purchasing an equivalent amount of bonds uh, and depositing those bonds in the state. And the idea was if the bank went belly up, um, the state could sell those bonds to then re redeem all those bank notes so as a, and the depositors as a way of um, protecting the, the depositors and the um, bank note holders. Uh, where it worked poorly, um, there wasn't very many restrictions on what could count as a bond. So um, in places uh, where, uh, such as New Jersey, for example, um, they weren't very strict and you, you could purchase bonds. They could be federal bonds, state bonds, they could be corporate bonds. Um, and the question was also, um, are you valuing them at their par value? So the stated value on the bond certificate itself, it's a $100 bond, um, or at their market value, it's a $100 bond, but it's actually only trading in the market for $50. Um, so how is this? So the states where this didn't work well, they didn't they were, didn't have very tight restrictions. New York, um, as, as they revised the law, and then Louisiana, where they adopted pretty much the, the New York statute, um, they were very strict about what bonds could count. Um, they had to be um, market value, not par value. And so in places where they were strict about this, this actually worked very well. Um, banks opened where they were needed um, as demand to meet meet needed demand. Um, they functioned well. They um, when they failed, the bond hold the 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 banknote holders and the depositors received back most of the value, um, and so they they functioned very well in those places. And they freed up the legislature. So before this, um, to open a bank, you needed to petition the legislature for a bank and it was very cumbersome. It was all about political connections. It was each, ba each bank charter was written individually. Um, so this really um, democratized the system. Anyone could do this who met the requirements, um, freed up the legislature and where it was done well, um, it, it uh, worked well for the economy, but it, it needed to be written well. In a lot of places it was not written well. Public banking. Yes. So public banks um, are uh, done in several states, especially in uh, places of the South. And so going back to the early 19th century, places like Virginia and North Carolina have banks that are either partially or wholly owned by the state. Um, and then these state banks would have uh, branches throughout the state. Um, and it actually, um, these were very stable systems. They worked very well. Um, sometimes in pl places like Kentucky, it was... Um, uh, after uh, the Panic of 1819, they decided, well, let's go with a public bank rather than a private bank. Um, and so these were uh, uh, just a different way of looking at banking, uh, very different from the small individual banks that we see in the Northeast. These are large banks with multiple branches throughout a state um, that are owned by the, the government and um, have more uh, government oversight. Do they provide uh, much revenue for a state? Did Virginia get much back from that? So <laughs> that's a great question. Um, the these banks, and actually, um, a lot of times, uh, whether they were public banks or private banks, um, they were promoted as revenue 
producing. Um, they were provo- promoted as a way to avoid taxation and raise all this revenue that we can put into building canals. And um, they often uh, did not meet all of those uh, uh, ideas. Um, at times, they did help uh, finance uh, certain infrastructure projects, um, but they often were not the um, magic bullet that they were promoted as. But the in, in places, um, for, for, for example, like Virginia, like North Carolina, they functioned uh, pretty well and um, d- did well, uh, for example, in the Panic of 1857, um, a lot of these st- state banking systems um, actually weathered the panic much better than uh, other places wh- which did not have public banking or these integrated systems of, of banks um, that, that we have with public banking. Finally, wildcat banks, briefly. Yeah. That, that's, I guess that's the anarcho-capitalist um, bank. <laughs> so, right. so a wildcat bank is, it was often associated with free banking, even though um, it, it technically could happen under any banking system. Um, so a wildcat is just when someone opens a bank, um, gets a bank charter, opens a bank uh, and presumably far away from a uh, population center, so where the wildcats roam, um, and uh, they issue all sorts of uh, banknotes um, well beyond what they have specie in their vaults. They uh, trade these banknotes for other banknotes or for specie on other, uh, other banks, and then they disappear. Um, they just go belly up and it's very difficult because they're located so far away. It's difficult for someone to know, is this a good bank? Is this a valid bank? Um, and uh, they they just disappear into thin air. Um, one of the best examples of this kind of behavior um, was actually in Rhode Island um, <laughs> in the early... Uh, Always. Er, er, Always Rhode Island. Uh, in the early days of uh, the 19th century, the first couple of years, there's... Um, a bank in Rhode Island that opened a, the, the same uh, incorporator opened another bank in, I believe it was uh, Detroit, Michigan, um, which at the time and, you know, 180123 is, um, you know, pretty much uh, beyond the frontier. Mm. Um, so he, he, they, they, he opened uh, these two banks, um, issued banknotes for both of them and distributed the the banknotes from Rhode Island in um, Michigan and distributed the Michigan banknotes in Rhode Island and uh, presumably no one would be able to bring them to the bank of issue and so he thought it was pretty safe until the whole scheme kind of fell apart on him. But. There's a certain kind of genius there. Yeah, uh, no, it's well thought out. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a great uh, con. Um, there's a long con, uh, yes. there's no doubt. It was a long um, con. So at this time also, we've got, uh, up until this time, you've said that banks are commercial banks. Now we've got savings banks. Uh, We've got building and loan banks. We've got investment banks. I was really interested to see that investment banks, I mean, it's uh, Peabody. And right. also, also the they're all in Baltimore. It's because of the the what's the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Right. Uh, that really starts investment banking in the United States. Right. So uh, we have all these different types of banks. So a commercial bank is really, um, as I said earlier, just bringing together people with money to lend and people who um, need money. So our 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 savers and our uh, borrowers. Um, a savings bank is um, initially a philanthropic institution. Uh, they mm-hmm. started in Britain, and the idea was to get the working poor 
to save for the future. Um, and so these were banks where you'd put in um, uh, pennies at a time on deposit um, and build up a, a bank account. They were not-for-profit. They were often run by um, really rich philanthropic donors who would start these banks and run these banks um, as a way to help the, the poor get the, uh, the poor off the, the uh, poverty rolls. Um, and so we adopt them, we start them here as well. Um, uh, Philadelphia is one of the first uh, modeled on the British model. And the idea is, is to help the, the poor um, to teach them. And there's a, there's a, a, a very uh, big brother uh, uh, paternalistic a attitude about this, that the, the poor are poor because they don't know how to save. So let's teach them how to do it. Um, uh, so to, to help the poor to, to save. Um, and they try to keep out um, there's a lot of restrictions on these savings banks. They are investing very carefully. Um, they pay interest, uh, which is unusual. A lot of um, bank deposits don't pay interest at this time. So it's a place where you can get interest, and, which means it attracts a lot of middle class people. Um, and they actually put in a lot of rules to try to keep out the middle class. They want to keep this for working class people. Um, there's rules. You can't just withdraw your money at any time. You have to give two weeks notice. Um, so, so people aren't withdrawing their money on a whim. Um, so all sorts of rules, but it's, it's really about it being a philanthropic savings and loans or building and loans, um, are really about trying to get people housing. And so these are kind of, um, pools of people who come together, um, and, uh, pool their money together and then start loaning out, to different individuals within the pool, um, not all at once, so um, kind of uh, consecutively, um, and they can uh, buy a house. And, um, and these are short-term mortgages. We don't have long-term mortgages until um, uh, the, the mid-20th century. Um, so these are very short-term mortgages, uh, but they um, can borrow um, and they, the other people are earning interest, um, and then eventually they can borrow to buy their house. And so it's kind of a, a community sharing type of model of everybody gets their turn to, uh, to buy their house uh, in this way. Um, our investment banks, investment banks are really about um, people, uh, really wealthy individuals um, who have a lot of money, um, and they are financing either uh, governments or corporations who need a lot of money, and they do that by buying um, stocks or bonds in those corporations. So this is what makes, even though it's still a financial intermediary, still bringing together um, a saver of a sort with a borrower of a sort, it's a very different sort of borrower and saver. So we're talking about um, buying stocks and bonds. Uh, these investment banks, uh, up until um, actually relatively recently, um, are not incorporated. They, they, they remain private. Um, so you, they're associated with those big names. It's someone like a Peabody or a Morgan or Alexander Brown. Um, so we call these, you know, the house of Morgan for a reason. Um, <laughs> these are individuals who have a lot of money, um, who take a risk on underwriting a, uh, uh, an IPO, an initial public offering or a, a stock issue for something like, uh, as you mentioned, a railroad, um, and so they take on the issue. So the, the railroad wants to raise a million dollars in financing. Um, uh, a uh, investor would say, well, I'll, I'll buy those bonds from you um, for, um, say, $850,000. That's what I'll give you. Um, and then I'll, I'll be responsible for selling it. 
And so that the they they take the um, all the bonds on themselves, or they do it in, in what's called a syndicate, which would be a, a group of investment bankers doing it together. Um, and then they turn around to their rich people that they know and um, divvy up those bonds, selling off those bonds um, anywhere between that um, $850,000 that they purchase it for and the million dollars that they're actually worth face value, whatever they make um, above that 850000 is their profit for, for this service. Um, and so um, they, they divvy it up and say $1,000 bond issues um, and, and sell them to investors in the Northeast, investors in Europe, um, wherever they can. And so uh, this is a way for um, a corporation to or a government to um, get financing um, without having to do find all the individual investors themselves. So uh, we're going over now. So I want to I want to start tying things up. Um, all a lot of this is going to change uh, rather dramatically. I would guess with the uh, California gold rush. Could you tell briefly how that how that changes things first before we get to the really big change of the Civil War? Yeah, the, the California gold rush um, just brings uh, an immense amount of liquidity into the system that we've never had before. So up to this point, we've been, you know, literally just cobbling things together with these banknotes. Um, and the, the gold rush actually provides our first real source. I mean, we have small, as you mentioned, discoveries of, of gold in um, a couple different areas. But this, this um, brings us liquidity in a way we've never had before. Um, and that um, bring some stability to the system, even though it's in some ways it's destabilizing because you're bringing this constant, this sudden influx of, of gold. Because there's, because there's so much of it. I mean, it's so a, immense it. amounts. Yeah, yeah, it's immense amounts. But because we're so species starved, um, mm. it actually is a, is a, a stabilizing force in many ways um, to provide actual, we're, we're not constantly trying to um, uh, get money from other places. And so for the first time, we can, for example, um, ban foreign currency. We, we've up hmm. to this point still depended on silver from silver coins from um, from the Spanish colonies. And now we can actually um, ban that or the, the the former Spanish colonies, Mexico and the like. Um, we, can, we can actually ban those coins and, and just have our own currency and we can actually start minting in a real way. And so that's that's a major change. Um, how, let's, um, I, I've been curious, <laughs> well, let me put it this way this morning in my inbox, uh, next to an email from you, I found, uh, get $3,000 and, uh, you know, gain up to $3,000 a day in Bitcoin. <laughs> and I thought, Hmm, maybe things haven't changed as much as I thought. And I'm thinking back in, I think the nineties, uh, the late Walter Riston, one of the guys basically invented the ATM and the credit card for Citibank. Um, he was predicting uh, decentralization of of money. Uh, Alan Greenspan, I think, also said the same and said he would, uh, as long as he was chair of the Federal Reserve, he wouldn't be standing in the way of that. These cryptocurrencies have come a lot slower than either Riston or Greenspan thought they would, but they're coming. Um, is that a way in which uh, things have sort of taken us back to where we were in a slight way? In some ways, it is. Um, you're you're going back to a system where, uh, more like the state bank system, where you don't have a legal tender currency, you don't have uh, any any government backing for it, and that's one of the attractions of these currencies is they're not government backed, um, but it also is a weakness of of these currencies. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'd say much more of a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency skeptic than um, someone like, say, Greenspan is. <laughs> but um, I don't, I don't see it as being this magic bullet solution that um, a lot of the promoters see it as. Um, I see more problems there, um, and uh, and a lot of it is is the secrecy about it. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, all of these systems are based on trust. Even the money in your pocket right now, you are trusting that. Uh, the government is going to accept that when you pay your taxes, um, which is important, and that you're, the government is um, acting responsibly and not over-issuing it. And that's really where the, um, the a lot of the cryptocurrency supporters don't trust the governments for this. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of governments have acted irresponsibly at various times. Um, but there's still an amount of trust that's that's there, and certainly the, the dollar in your po- pocket um, has, uh, you know, since World War II been the most trusted currency worldwide um, and certainly was the basis for um, things like Bretton Woods and the like. Um, the, the idea that a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin would ever gain that trust um, is where I'm skeptical, um, mm-hmm. especially not knowing. We don't even know who started this whole thing um, and the idea of mining and and um, is it really they say there's a limit, but, um, you know, at, at what point do they decide, oh, you know what, it's it's there's not enough to support um, the, the currency. So we're going to we're going to actually inflate it. And there, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of, of problems. But, yeah, uh, there, there are a lot of similarities with the kind of Wild West of uh, the 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 pre-Federal Reserve era um, or, or even pre-Civil War era banking that we had. Um, when I looked at your acknowledgments, I uh, realized there was an answer to a question that I had already posed to you um, about how you got interested. First of all, you have a PhD in history. Yes. Uh, and you're doing economic history, which seems to be illegal these days, that the only economic historians <laughs> are actually in economics departments. And that's yes, probably that's true. <laughs> a subject for another conversation. But it turned out that you actually had two advisors, which right. means that you had two heads, uh, and you were because you were of two minds. Right. Um, so, could you? How did you become an economic historian? How did you get interested in this stuff? And and also, I have a lot of questions here. But can you tell about your next project? Because I, I think it's that's it's very exciting for someone like me who's interested in the South and, and Southern history. So, um, I, I I was always a historian since um, birth. Um, I always <laughs> uh, I always had a historical mind. But um, when I got to college, I discovered that I loved economics. And I found it fascinating in the, in the intersections. And so um, I minored in economics and um, went to grad school to study economic history. Um, I specifically wanted to do it in a history department, which has become very hard, as you pointed out. Um, almost every economic historian these days is now in an economics department. And so one of the reasons that I did my Ph.D. at um, University of Virginia was because they had an economic historian, one each in the history department and the econ department. Mm-hmm. So it was a very rare loca- location where I could actually have the best of both worlds. Um, and uh, my father, as you you mentioned in my acknowledgments, my father was a banker. Um, and so some of this was just um, being uh, learning about banks from him when I was young and um, living through uh, the catastrophe that was uh, the consolidation of banking in the early 90s when he lost his job. And so all of that became very interesting to me. Um, and so in some ways, banking was in my my blood. Um, 
And uh, but uh, very quickly, um, even though I am trained as an economic historian, um, the the way that economic history has gone so far into economics departments have, has become so dependent on running regressions and um, statistical models. And that's very hard to do in the early Republic. We just don't have the statistics yeah. to to pull that off. Um, and so that I must mean that must mean they don't have an economy. I mean, yeah. obviously, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> there are no economics then. They can't no run economics. a regression. So, um, you know, I actually today would call myself a business historian uh, or huh. financial historian, which is, you know, a financial historian being very specific. I also my first book was actually on life insurance. Um, but the um, because in many ways, um, I'm no longer fit into the, what economic history has has become. Um, uh, so business history is a much more um, interdisciplinary world um, where I, I fit much more comfortably. Um, my, uh, uh, my current project that I'm working on actually comes from this book that we've been talking about, um, as I was going through and I had outlined all the different kind of things I wanted to talk about in the book. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, um, I wanted to make sure I dealt with banking, um, in all its regional components. I actually had, um, a close friend, uh, a scholar of counterfeit money, who um, Stephen Mim, I will out him. Um, when I was first, <laughs> when I was first writing this book, um, I told him I was going to write a a usable, reader friendly book on um, banking from the the revolution to the Civil War, and he looked at me and said, "They can't be done." Um, because <laughs> he was, was wrong. He was, was wrong. Uh, well, I and, I, and I, I like to point that out to him. But um, <laughs> yeah. but his point was because because the system um, is is so state based and so regional, and there's so many different iterations of it in different places. And so I was trying to be very conscious of that. And so for the South, I was like, well, what's going on with slaves? The relationship between slaves and banking, and slaves are uh, more than half the wealth in the South. There must be a relationship. And as I was writing this book. I couldn't find anyone talking about this. Um, very few people. And I thought, oh, my God, either there is no relationship between slavery and banking, which would be amazing, or um, even more amazing, no one's written about this. And this would be an, a, 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 just a, a phenomenal next project. And it turns yeah. out that the latter was true, luckily for me. And that's, so that's what I'm working on now. It's, it's wonderful that you're doing that. I, I realized that when you when I found out you're working on that, I realized I had the same thing. I said, "Wait a second, no one's written on that." Yeah, I I realized that what I had in my head about slaves and banking, or at least some observations I've made to like you know in, in class before, was based on deducing things from say um, charts and time on the cross, right? Uh, and and just basically knowing that if a, if a person can be both capital and labor, then there are certain financial implications from that. Yeah, That's people real- have talked about them as as a labor system. Um, so economic historians have done quite a bit. Time on the Cross is a is a good example. Historians have done a lot um, on on other aspects. Of, virtually every aspect of slavery has been um, examined in depth. Um, even though there's still ways to go, but the financial aspect has been largely. Um, neglected or minimalized. And um, there are a couple people who've done a little bit with it, um, uh, but really not th- this this direct relationship between banking and slavery um, is, is really uh, very few people have even touched on. My guest today has been Sharon Ann Murphy. She's the author of Other People's Money, How Banking Worked in the Early American Republic. And not only can she explain it, 
she makes it really interesting. <laughs> Sharon, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.